0: podcast acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters in which this podcast is produced. We recognize their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting this coastline and its ecosystem since time immemorial. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Sovereignty has never been ceded, it always was, and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Tree Talks Podcast, the podcast that branches out into the world of trees one episode at a time. In this episode, we're talking to Professor David Lindenmeyer, an Australian scientist and academic. He'll be talking about his many years within the landscape ecology, conservation, and biodiversity. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.
1: I, I actually was born in Melbourne a long time ago. And I uh, lived there for about the first 10 years of my life. And when I was, I think, yeah, I was around about 10, my parents moved to Canberra. And I lived, to, lived in Canberra for another seven years, went to school, primary school and high school here. And my father, towards the end of my high school time, my father, really interested and passionate about birds. And I used to be sort of intrigued about how my father would associate with these people that would only have to hear a bird fart from 400 metres and they seemed to know what it was. So (laughs) I eventually um, started to get a bit interested in the environment. When I was a teenager, I was was mesmerised by football. So I I played a lot of football. Uh, And that's
0: Australian football, not?
1: No, uh, soccer.
0: Oh okay great cool
1: and then i spent a year playing football in europe um but it wasn't good enough so came back to australia and and um then got interested in marine biology so i tra- i went to townsville and studied marine biology for a while didn't like townsville very much it's a pretty rough pretty rough town and decided to come back to Hanborough to study at ANU and a friend of my father's was was interested in he was working at CSIRO and he was interested in wildlife surveys and they're doing surveys of military training areas for biodiversity and I kind of really got interested in that and um, from there I did an undergraduate degree in forestry and wildlife and then in the early 1980s, I started working in forests in Victoria. And from there, I've sort of kind of stayed with forests and biodiversity ever since. So this is my 41st year of working in the tall, wet forest in Victoria. Wow.
0: Yeah. That transition from football to marine um, marine conservation, was it, um, yeah. That is a extreme contrast. Was that an easy transition because another passion of yours to follow, or uh,
1: I got I got bored with um, professional football. I wasn't. I knew. I knew the minute that I I started playing in the Netherlands that I wasn't good enough. So, um, I played semi professionally here, and I got a scholarship to go to. To play with a huge, huge um, team in the sa- south of the Netherlands called uh, PSV Eindhoven. It's a massive team. So I think it's second or third second biggest team in the Netherlands. And the Dutch were the they weren't world champions at that stage, but they played in two successive World Cups, seventy four and seventy eight. So, and and the team that that the company that sponsored the 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 equivalent of what's the a league here now was phillips and phillips uh, that's the electronics company was the um the sponsor of the league and their headquarters was eindhoven and it's in the netherlands so phillips is a dutch company and so i ended up there and i had fun playing but i realized i wasn't the right physique i'm, I'm not i'm you know only about six foot tall, a little bit under that. And I've got very small hands like Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) We don't judge. We don't judge here. (laughs) I wasn't suited to be a goalkeeper. And um, so I realised that, but I was also bored. Training in those days was very, very mechanical, not very creative. and I was actually more interested in the travel and, and the landscapes than I was kicking footballs after a while. So when I came back to Australia, I played for a little bit longer because I was on a contract but I was actually more interested in doing other things like marine learning about marine biology learn how to scuba dive and other sorts of stuff so which I still do not as much as I'd like because I've got so many commitments but um yeah it's and then I I I think I was more at home in forests yeah okay and I understand forests more than than coral reefs so
0: did did you grow up in in forest areas in Melbourne and Canberra? Were they green neighborhoods?
1: Not so much. Um, my father father and mother used to go out on holidays on these these epic car drives to northern Australia and to South Australia and elsewhere. And these was in the these are the days when we didn't have CD players. You didn't have you know, it was even before Walkman's, the radio didn't work. there weren't DVD players in the back seat, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> no laptops, you know, iPhones, anything. So you had to learn how to entertain yourself and be bored and look out at look out at the the environment out the window of your car. And so at- I kind of began to think about landscapes maybe subconsciously, and that's where that that sort of, yeah, that's sort of where it went.
0: I imagine that your dad as well would observe all the what well, the birds and that that he would acknowledge and maybe share that with you. Would would that be interesting or you kind of
1: Yeah, eventually it became um eventually became more interested in in going to some of these these natural places. Uh, my mother didn't like didn't like it to begin with. Both my parents are very musical. And I didn't inherit the ability to read music very well. I've sort of forgotten that over the last 40 years, but I have inherited a very good ear for birds, and that's that's a, an important part of the work that we do still. Yeah, so there's they, Both of them had a big influence on thinking about the environment. They never really they never told me what I should do or anything like that but they were just they were very my mother in particular came from a very small town in Queensland she was a mu- musical prodigy at age 4 she was playing the the organ in the church in this tiny little mining town in in central Queensland burning money for the family that way sitting on wow. milk crates on milk crates where they delivered milk in bottles with tops, silver tops. And um, she always believed that the key to life was education. Mm. And uh, so that was her way out of this little town and then into Queensland and the university there at a time when you know less than half of 1% of people who'd gone to school in Queensland actually went on to to university so it's a pretty pretty amazing time and my mother who's recently died but had has always had this sense of the importance of education and lifelong learning that's kind mm. of thing. so yeah mm. interesting
0: when you went you said you worked at forest you started working in forestry in in victoria was that for private or um pub, um
1: yeah, so, so what happened towards the end of my degree, my um, lecturer in invertebrate zoology um, was really quite an inspiring woman and she was strongly connected to someone who she'd, she'd studied with at the same time, uh, who was a lecturer at another university but, but had established a research project in the tall wet forest in Victoria and needed a field assistant to support that work. And I, I knew a lot about bushwalking. I knew how to handle myself in the field. Um, I'd done a lot of trapping and other things. And so I ended up with this job working for him. He was at a university in northern New South Wales. And I was working on my own in the forest in Victoria, basically running his project for him. And I, yeah, so it started in July 1983. And it's still going now. It's coming up. Oh to wow! First year. Yeah.
0: And you're still involved in it.
1: So what happened was that it, the project went for a year, and then the money ran out. So I, I um, I decided to I was going to go wandering. So I went to Europe and the US. It was a typical thing for kids to do in those days. So I wandered around for about a year and a half, and then came back. And I decided I wanted to be a school teacher. So I, tra- I went to Adelaide and did teacher training. But in the next year, my mother got really ill and my parents had split up. So I needed to come back to Canberra to look after my mum. And so I was, t- I was teaching little kids during the day. And I started my, what then it was a master's. I did a master's at night. And after a couple of years, uh, I converted that to a PhD so it took another year. So I finished my PhD in three years. And I was teaching for the first two of those three years. I didn't get a scholarship. So I was teaching little kids during the day. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it was pretty full on, but a good experience. And then then I was offered a job with the Victorian government. So I moved to Victoria for the best part of three years and worked down there, still working in those forests. So my PhD was in those forests. Yeah my first year as a technical officer was in those forests so that was 83 84 and then i started my phd in 80 early 87 and and then kept working through the forests then and it's been continuous ever since since then
0: or well, have you noticed any difference since all um since those decades of working and being in that this forest have you noticed a change or
1: yeah lots of big changes um So right through, so from the early 1920s, there was a policy of liquidating old growth forest and converting it into uh, young, fast-growing, tall, straight, non-defective trees. And that policy went right through to the late 1980s. And so I've really noticed over the years a massive change in the in the extent of old forest, which is now really, really rare. So, so for example, when I first began working in those forests in Victoria, we had about one, one in every three trees had an animal in it. The big, big old trees. Yeah. Now that's fundamentally changed, and it's out to about one in every eight trees, and those trees are extremely rare in the landscape now. Mm. And, and so we've seen really marked declines in populations of a whole range of animals. So, for example, the the greater glider, which is one of my favourite favourite species, would be the most common animal we'd see in a spotlight routinely. And that, that animal is now extremely rare. And we hardly, we don't see it virtually at all. It's declined in, in the last 25 years. It's declined more than 80%. And other animals like leadbird's possum have declined by 50%. Yeah.
0: And so because of these this research, this is able to help change those policies and to influence what happens within those areas.
1: So what's, what's really happened now as a consequence of our long-term work is that this area, which is the most productive forestry area in Victoria, has also been the most heavily logged and as time's gone on we've looked at the ecology of the forest the ecology of plants and animals but then understanding disturbance and then through understanding disturbance understanding the impacts of fire the impacts of logging and and then into resource management and understanding what the extent of the resources that are left over and it's really quite it's quite profound to see the fact that there's almost no timber left in the most productive timber catchment in all of Victoria and probably mainland Australia, frankly. And, and so the industry has basically cut itself completely out of resource. And at the same time, we've seen the industry shift from being a timber industry to largely a forestry industry, which is about primarily wood chips and paper pulp and box liners and things like that. So we've seen the industry shift quite dramatically in that 40 years to, to an, an industry that was dominated by high volume, low value forest products, wood chips, paper pulp, box liners, you know, those kinds of things. And at the same time, the losses made by industry have skyrocketed and the number of people that are employed in the industry have collapsed Mm. and to the extent where the industry is no longer sustainable, sustainable financially from the part of the Victorian government. So for example in the last two years the native forest logging industry in victoria cost the taxpayer nearly 270 million dollars and and that's not including all the debts and the other other kinds of things so that's that's one of the, the major changes is that the social and economic fabric of how the industry functioned is completely eroded the second thing that's really quite profound is the change in fire regimes so fire in these really tall wet forests should be rare, uh, very severe, very intense disturbances, but extremely rare. You know, the, the average return interval for high severity fire should be somewhere between 75 and 150 years. But we've seen 10 major fire events in the last you know, century or so. And the recurrent fire basically means that fire and logging are competing for the forest resource, and fire is winning. And fire is winning because when a forest is logged and then it's regenerated, the forest becomes more flammable for about 30 or 40 years. And so there's a cycle where you cut the forest, it's becomes it's, the forest regenerates, it's quite young. The very young forest is very flammable. It has a risk of reburning. When it reburns, it burns at very high severity. And eventually the system sort of cycles in on itself through a set of feedbacks and collapses. And so we've seen this really big pulse of of flammability, not only in these tall wet forests, but in fact right across uh, eastern Australia from Victoria right up through to northern New South Wales. It's a big problem.
0: And when you say fire, is this um, when you said like wet forests are 500 600 years of fire uh, this kind of time range is this um human like first nations people that would u- use this burning or is this naturally what what the or, or this continent uh, and the fires that currently are there are these again natural occurrences of fire because they're so flammable how how does that
1: okay so these tall wet forests and gondwanic rainforests that in, that occur within them are not places that you would naturally have seen burnt by First Nations people, okay? So we need to unpack that a bit. So cultural burning by First Nations people is is pri- primarily about creating areas of green pick for hunting animals. And so to be effective in that space for hunting animals, you actually need to do very small localised burns because the aim of the game is to bring, bring these game animals to you. That's... The energetics and efficiency of it because if you do large broadcast burns over huge areas <clears throat> you're going to have <clears throat> you're going to have your animals dispersed over large areas you're not going to be able to hunt them it's too hard to find them they're everywhere so <clears throat> part of the scene is to to do localized burns those localized burns cultural burns are also about bringing up food in in the ground layer so tubers and other things And so this is not, those kinds of localised cultural burns are not really conducive to being applied in the tall, wet forests. So cultural burning is very different to prescribed burning, which is largely done now on an industrial scale uh, by Western forestry agencies in Australia. And both kinds of fire, cultural burning and prescribed burning, are different, again, to... Wildfires, which are started by lightning or arsonists under periods of extreme conditions. And so what we're really talking about here is the severity of wildfires. And what we see is that when a forest is logged or it's thinned, or even if it's prescribed burnt, it's much more likely to, to be a high severity fire. And so what we see is what a process that we call disturbance-stimulated flammability. And so there's a host disturbance, whether it's logging, thinning or prescribed burning. There's this period of elevated flammability that leads to the greater risk of high severity fire across the footprint of that disturbance. And that that pulse of extra flammability can last anywhere from five years to 70 years, depending on the disturbance, depending on the system that you're dealing with.
0: Is there any, as well as tax um, paying, is there any other impact within people within
1: urban areas oh, there's massive impacts of the changes in forests so yeah. so one is that when you elevate the severity of fire so severity severity means how the fire burns the vegetation okay does it burn the whole crown does it burn the 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 stumps of the the um the shrubs those kinds of things So severity is is the impact on vegetation. Intensity is the amount of heat that's generated from a fire. Okay? They're different things. They're different measures, of fire impact. And, yeah, they're related. The more intense a fire, usually the more severe the fire is and vice versa. Uh, But high-severity fires that burn in the crowns of trees generate enormous amounts of, of heat. And that radiant heat can kill people, and it does kill people lots of people, as we discovered in 2009. So there's a direct fire effect, fire severity, fire intensity effect on on people that live within or close to the forest. Okay, so that's, that's one of the big issues. Another, another really important component of all this is that, for example, when you log a forest, you produce literally hundreds of tonnes of logging slash, logging debris, tree crowns, lateral branches, tree ferns, vegetation that that gets squashed by logging machines. And that material is let to dry. So it cures. And then after a couple of years, then you burn it. And you create a bed of ashes in which to sprinkle the seeds to regrow a new stand of trees, right? So now that a large proportion of that logging slash, about half of it, is volatilized. As industrial smoke pollution, which is very bad for people's health. You now that industrial smoke pollution does all sorts of nasty things to humans, including increase the risk of of viruses moving into your respiratory system. And so there's a direct impact of logging on human health via this the smoke problem. Okay, so there's. There are these, these kinds of effects that are quite important. Now, the third thing that's that's very important in this space is that when you log a forest and then you regenerate it, you end up with very, very rapid rates of growth of young trees, which is one of the reasons why the forest is very flammable. But the other thing that happens is that those trees are growing very quickly and taking a lot of soil moisture out of the system and transpiring it through the leaves up into the atmosphere. And that dries out the forest Now the water that's generated by forests into water catchments is really critical for human consumption, including the five plus million people of Melbourne. And so really the aim of a water catchment manager is to make sure the forest is as old as possible because old forests produce the most water because young forests suck a lot of water out of the soil and that doesn't make its way into streams and the streams then don't make their way into dams. And then the the, uh, level of dams is is lowered and you have to find your water from somewhere else, which means you have to generally get it from desalination plants. And when you get it from desalination plants, it costs you a lot of greenhouse gases to make that water. And so the water is very expensive. So you can see there's a number of knock-on effects in terms of fire risks, in terms of water supply, in terms of smoke yields uh, and and uh, the quality of air sheds, all those kinds of things that relate to the, the condition of forests.
0: During all this time then, and you've seen the loss of biodiversity, the impacts it has on human hum, humanity's health and what it does to the land and changing conditions within the environment we live in. Have you seen any positive changes that's happened in your time of research? You know.
1: Yes, I have seen very positive changes. Um, So in May 2023, 23rd of May 2023, the Victorian government announced that it was no longer going to continue native forest logging because, uh, well, I think the likely reason wasn't environmental. I think it was economic. There was no resource left and it was costing the state a fortune. But that's a very positive outcome. So, So now the challenge is... How can we start to restore the forests given the damage that's been done? And I see big opportunities for First Nations people. I see big opportunities to restore forests to store more carbon, to generate more water, um, to recover biodiversity. You know, what an incredible opportunity that will be to to do something really positive in this space.
0: Is it? Correct though that it takes years for that to benefit back to us again, and and we shouldn't be doing things just to benefit human humankind. That should just be something we should just be doing. Right is is leaving the nature to itself. But
1: oh well, I think the the effects are the the benefits are enormous directly. Okay, so so every year of logging that was taking place in Victoria, you were generating the equivalent of seven hundred and thirty thousand motor vehicles worth of emissions right? So this year onwards, we've got 730,000 vehicles worth of emissions that didn't make it into the atmosphere because we didn't log the forest. So we're actually storing significantly more carbon by not logging logging forests. And for every year that the forest gets older, the more water we're going to see move back towards uh, streams, creeks, and then into dams, so we're increasing the resilience of of Melbourne to drought by increasing the amount of water that's held in the catchments.
0: All that research and things you're doing—are you continuously to re- researching, or um, you want learning how to be a teacher? Are you spending your time teaching, or how would you like to, um, within your career or your um, passion? I, I see it as a passion as well because this is a long time you've been doing it, and you're very knowledgeable on multiple layers of what goes on within.
1: Yeah, I, th- I feel like I've b- been very privileged to for the taxpayer to have supported me in, in my work for such a long time. And it's really important to give back to the community and the country that, that supported you over that time. So I, I, I love writing. I love doing research. I love finding out new things. I love working with people. And making discoveries Uh, and i'd like to be able to keep doing that for another 20 years Um, at least for as long as i think i can make a contribution at the same time i do i do a lot of public speaking uh, and i do a lot of work to try to communicate science in in interesting ways whether it's writing popular books or working with people who are fantastic photographers and Bringing that work together, so I think I don't think it's appropriate for scientists just to do very focused research and not tell anybody about it. I, I think it's I think it's really important that you give something back to the people that support you, which is the taxpayer, and that you communicate what your science is saying in the in the best possible way, uh, and then you you try to make that science available to and it's accessible to as many people as possible and I don't write kids books but I know people who do and those people reach out to me regularly to fact check stuff or give them feedback on things and you know that's I don't do that in the mornings when I'm writing myself I don't do it in the afternoons when I'm helping students and, and others but I'll do it at night to give people feedback so instead of watching love island or married at first sight or do other things that will perhaps be a little bit more of a contribution to the country
0: (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate you sacrificing your time to do that instead of watching those shows
1: (laughs) yeah well i'm sure i've missed out big time but that's just the way it is
0: (laughs) have you ever been part of the conversation of um, what that means if we don't log in terms of our of resources for um society and and that said
1: yes, frequently um you know I used to hear this all the time if we don't log forests, we won't be able to build houses, all that sort of stuff, and you know i used to I used to understand the meaning of that used to think about it deeply until I started to discover what was going on with our forests. So 88% of all sawn timber in New South Wales and the same in Victoria until the industry native forest industry just closed, the sawn timber to make roof trusses, floorboards, furniture, fence, strainers, all those kinds of things actually came from plantations. It didn't come from native forests. And 90% of everything being cut in native forests actually went into the wood chip paper pulp stream and so this, this notion that if we stop logging native forests, we'll have no timber to build houses is nothing short of frog shit. Because when you look at the structure of the industry, you, you realise that we're not making houses with native forest timber. Where This is what the, the forest is being used for. And the, and the really valuable part of the industry, the sawn timber part, is actually almost completely plantation dominated. Mm-hmm. And the insanity of this is that the, the plantation eucalypt trees that are grown are now being exported as well, 97% of it. And, you know, they're not my numbers. They come from um, the federal government. And so I think, you know, the the, the, the there are deep structural problems in the in the forest industry in Australia, that need urgently need reform. So, if you were to hold back some of that native, some of that plantation timber, you could more than satisfy the requirements for for paper pulp and the like. You and you don't need to log native forests at all.
0: I think it's people see it as black and white, like you said. If if we don't do forestry, people lose the jobs, and that's yeah.
1: it. So I heard that. Used to hear that that account as well um so so there was a chronology of things when i first started first of all it was oh there's no effective logging it's all right and then then we actually showed yeah actually there really was a big effect there was a big impact on the environment a big impact on biodiversity so then we got the oh well it's really important for the economy it's a critical industry in australia and then as time went on it was pretty clear that the industry was losing a lot of money and not just in Victoria. It was, you know, the, literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in Tasmania and elsewhere. And then it was, oh, well, okay, but that's 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 a that's the cost that society pays to employ tens of thousands of people. And, and then eventually sort of thought, well, hang on, if this is an industry that's mostly producing wood chips and paper pulp, very high volume, low value forest products. Where are all the jobs? Mm. And it's less than a few thousand nationwide. And so none of the none of none of it stacks up anymore. It doesn't stack up economically. Doesn't stack up socially. Doesn't stack up environmentally. And I think there's far better things that you can do with a forest to to give you much. Greater values to society. It's, you know, we've, and we've actually done this now. We've done environmental and economic accounting looking at the the value of the different natural assets in contributing to regional GDP. And the value of water is 25 and a half times the value of wood chips. The value of tourism industry is 20 times the value of wood chips. Even at, at a shadow price for carbon at $12.23 the carbon value is still four times the value of wood chips in terms of contribution it doesn't it, it just doesn't fit anymore and I, I think finally through all of the different angles of work that we've done the the Victorian government recognized that they could no longer afford to keep propping this up and the Western Australians came to the same out, outcome as well.
0: but the rest of Australia do you know where they that. So
1: the native forest industry in Queensland is mar- is very small. It's marginal, and, and there's other reasons for that. One is one is that um, they've done a lot of land clearing in Queensland, lost a lot of forest. Uh, but they've also got a forestry act, which means that forest keeps getting burnt and then grazed and then logged and then burnt and then grazed, and so there's a cycle that drives down the carrying capacity of the forest in terms of trees. That's a really big issue. Um, And they've got a lot of plantations in Queensland, native plantations and and native conifers like hoop pine, but they've also got a lot of uh, tropical conifers, um, Caribbean or slash pine, others. And so Queensland is a small native forest industry that's always been pretty marginal. There are attempts to resuscitate it, but because the forest has has been overcut and then overmanaged through fire and grazing. That's, that's a deep-seated problem. In Queensland, New South Wales, southern New South Wales is like Victoria. It's a basket case, and it has been for a long time, and it's an industry completely dominated by the Eden wood chip mill where almost all the wood goes through there. And the industry, it costs more to cut a tree down than you get for, for the tree and and so the management costs way exceed the the stumpage for taking the tree out of the ground northern new south wales is a little bit more difficult to reconcile because there's a lot of small mills and a lot of small sort of bush owners there and a lot more private land so the structure of the industry is different in different regions Mm. within that state and then between the different states tasmania is a lot more more difficult to work out how to sort it out, because Tasmania is so poor relative to the rest of Australia, and Tasmania's GDP is about a third of the ACT's. And the industry has always been thought to be fundamental to the economy of Tasmania, but it, but it doesn't employ many people. And and they're by and large not very well paid jobs. Uh, the total industry, plantation industry, and native forest sector in Tasmania is about eight hundred people. Mm-hmm. So it's tiny, just despite the impact that they're having, because they are logging old growth forest in Tasmania still. Yeah. So yeah, this I think the solutions are going to be different for each state.
0: Yeah, right. not one stop shop for.
1: No, but I do think that if the federal government stepped up and had a proper carbon methodology, then the the value of the forest for carbon storage in Tasmania would. Would completely overwhelm the industry, and and uh, Tasmania would actually have a significant source of income to be able to do other things like build their stupid football stadium, uh, but do more important things like make sure there's enough d- doctors and nurses in their different hospitals, and deal with with the uh, housing crisis in Tasmania. Uh, you know, so I I, mm. I think this is a, a situation where the federal government needs to step in with the appropriate carbon methodology to unlock the income streams that are important to tackling disadvantage in that state.
0: Are there other countries doing super well that there's already research being done that other countries should be following or um, taking note of?
1: So I think one of the most interesting countries in this space is actually New Zealand. So, so New, New Zealand had prolonged shit fights over forests for decades. And eventually the New Zealand government woke up to itself and realised that the, the native forest logging sector in New Zealand was going nowhere, but it was causing enormous angst and social dislocation. And so they, you know, 20 years ago, they just pulled a pin, said enough's enough. We're not going to prop this up anymore. We're going to invest in plantations, going to unlock investment in plantations, and we're going to unlock investment in their conservation sector, in their national parks and, reserves, and and uh, new zealand hasn't looked back
0: that's incredible
1: yeah
0: and they're literally our neighbors so
1: yeah but new zealand's been ahead new zealand's been ahead of australia on lots of things same-sex marriage you know Mm -hmm. native forest logging all those kinds of things and you know for for a very small country it's got some uh, very advanced thinkers in this space which i think is wonderful
0: we know that climate crisis is the serious thing that's happening and we know that trees are highly important to it it's the where we can help is keeping trees and planting more trees and in, and keeping the old growth um what, how, why do you think that it's so slow for society to to change and to qu- quickly make decisions to say like as you said, like New Zealand doing amazing things.
1: Because it's because it's all natural resource industries are, are packed full of a small number of people with very large amounts of vested interest. Okay. Mm. So if if you or I were to go to the Halls of Parliament House on Monday here in Canberra, you would see highly paid professional lobbyists for for the the forestry part of the the Forestry Union that oversees native forest logging. You would see a highly paid economist for a uh, highly paid lobbyist. Sorry for um, the the Australian um, um, Forest Products Association (AFPA). Right, so so those people are in Parliament all the time, lobbying all the time. Uh, they don't they don't have to speak truths. They just have Mm. to lobby. And and so that then gets in the way. You know, large parts of Australia that have forests would have been far better off 10, 15 years ago with the regular income streams associated with uh, protecting forests, not only for biodiversity reasons, but also carbon storage reasons. And then, and then, with some strategic infrastructure, you can create additional tourism assets, and and uh, you can you can see significant regional rejuvenation of economies. And that's fundamental. And that's been seen worldwide. People have hundreds of case studies about about how you make transitions well, and and in many cases, the locals will say, well why didn't we do this 20 years ago yeah and the reason that that it didn't happen 20 years ago is that you had a small number of people with very very large vested interests and their vested interest was to block any change because they were doing so well out mm.
0: of it i think this also filters down where if we're not looking after our wild forests that's left that whatever's left of it then we make these urban areas where there's, again, a disconnect with nature and people don't know how to live near vegetation. They don't like the wildlife near them. They don't like large trees that are left. So there's this fear or this disconnect from nature that filters down.
1: I think that's especially true in forests. So, you know, mm-hmm. we've had the stories of Little Red Riding Hood going way back, have the, the the stories of, hobbits lost in in the forests and then having to be rescued by ants you know all those kinds of things you know the the, all of those those stories about being lost in forests and forests being difficult places that go right back deep in our own culture Mm. and many many other cultures as well And, and and so we so that disconnect is partly associated with fear which is not rational but it's it's you know very few cultures have really learned to love forests. Mm. And you know some of the earliest the earliest earliest historical accounts by humans on stone tablets are of of regions of the world that were deforested and how rapidly they changed you know, around Rome, uh, Morocco, Tunisia, um, Iraq, Iran, those kinds of places where the legacy of of change two or three thousand years ago is still with us. Oh gosh,
0: we've got a lot lot of work, eh?
1: <laughs> we have a lot of work but it's also a lot of opportunity you know, and yeah. putting forests back together again. So the exit of native forest logging in Victoria opens up enormous opportunities to restore forests, to, to store more carbon. Hmm. So we're going to have to put artificial cavities and other things back in the forest because of of the damage that we've done to the forest over the last 60 70 years, we're going to have mm-hmm. to do a lot of work to control feral deer because deer absolutely smash regeneration of forests and deer are ruminants, so they're producers of greenhouse gases. But there's industries associated with harvesting deer and controlling deer. Now, there's an estimate of more than a million deer in Victoria. So so if we're going to control deer we're going to have to t- we're going to have to remove. Two three 300,000 animals every year. Yeah. And if we do that, then that's a hell of a lot of deer flesh and we should be thinking about how we can subsidise it to start it, to make it work.
0: In terms of the wildlife in the area, when you were researching wildlife and and you see the loss there, was that ever considered in in conversations about the loss that we're losing wildlife? Was that... Or do you think only recently in the last few years that people start realising the amount of wildlife we're losing?
1: Uh, I think it's only been in the last few years we've been able to to, um, push the story that, not the story of the science, sorry, that many species of, many animals do not leave an area when you log it. Mm. They just die. They die on site. They're gone. Mm. And so the animal welfare people are starting to, to go, oh, my God, this is actually serious stuff. It's not good. So mm. uh, but in the early days, people were saying, oh, look, we don't log that much forest. It's not a big deal. And the forest grows back. So it's all fine. And and as time's gone on, we've actually discovered that it's actually the most productive bits of the forest where the trees grow fastest where the animals want to be, not surprisingly. It's just the same as we live in Melbourne, Sydney or Brisbane. We don't live 200 kilometres west of Alice Springs. And so these animals are strongly associated with these environments and, and they're highly productive places That's just so happen to be the places that people want to cut down at the same time. And so there's a strong spatial conflict between where animals live and why they live where they do. and and that conflict with with people wanting to cut the forest down. Mm. And so so there's quite a deep science now to understanding that where you log the forest are the most important. It's the worst place to log because it's where the conservation values are highest. And the more logging we do in the landscape, the fewer animals we have. And the fewer animals we have, uh, the more precious the remaining areas that aren't logged become. But then the bigger the damage when you do log those places so again there's some some nasty interactions that take place that that uh, really erode biodiversity in a pretty serious way like this mm. yeah
0: I'm really grateful that you yeah that you've spent all this time doing the research that you have this passion I, I appreciate that you take the time to share that and I, I highly recommend anybody to check out your books uh, are there anywhere else that you encourage people to look at? Like, you've got lots of research papers, so if anybody can access those, they're good too.
1: Yeah, people never read research papers, which is why we convert them into other communications products, including the Forest Wars book, which is coming out in March. Um, I have to give a plug for that. That's really a, a sort of a potted history of 41 years of frustration listening to myths peddled by industry relative to the to the reality of what's happening so uh, i think creating other communications products be it uh, little films um beautiful coffee table books um podcasts all these kinds of things are important to be able to connect with people to to illustrate to them that there are, there are important things to be done and and we can make the world a better place and it is important to make it a better place because It's a key part of who we are as people. You know, in the case of Melbourne, Melbourne's 5 million people and it sits on the doorstep of some of the most remarkable forests in the world that nobody knows there. Mm. Everybody knows who plays full forward for Essendon or Carlton or Collingwood or who won the flag this year or who's the favourites for the coming year, but they don't know where their water comes from and they they're not able to go and experience these places that are so close. And that's why I'm such a strong advocate for the Great Forest National Park, for example. Mm. Because if I look at the competition between Sydney and Melbourne, people in Sydney have 10 times as much land per capita access to reserves as Melbourneites do. Yeah. 10 times.
0: It's a question I ask all my guests, David, and it's if trees could talk, what do you think they would say?
1: Trees could talk. What would they say? They would say they've been horrified to see what's happened in the rest of Australia's landscapes. It was almost like British invaders hated trees. They worked so hard to remove so many trees. We lost 15 billion trees from the Murray-Darling Basin alone. 15 billion trees. We have vast areas of Victoria that had some of the world's most majestic forests in South Kippsland, around Corumburra and those kinds of places. They're all cleared dairy farms. A couple of hundred thousand hectares of forest is gone. Mm. They would be appalled by what's happened. Those trees would be appalled by what's happened in the rest of Australia's landscapes. And they know that we have to do a much better job And frankly, the First Nations people in Australia did do a great job. There were places like the Tall Wet Forest, which was no fire country, which is important to know. They didn't burn that country very much. And the legacy of their their stewardship, the protection of their forests, has been that we had enormous biological legacy when British invaders first came to Australia. And look what we've done. We've managed to, to wipe... 10% 10% of our mammals off the face of the earth mm. in 200 years and lead the world in mammal extinctions. They're still land clearing 500,000 hectares a year, for God's sake. Yeah. So they would be rightly appalled.
0: I think you've brought a really good point. If we don't acknowledge the history of what's happened, we'll never be able to move forward if we ignore, because we just continue to make the same mistakes.
1: Absolutely. You know, for God's sake, let's make some different ones than the ones that we've made in the past.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, David, for your time. I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed um, being able to listen to you.
1: Good. Thanks, Mona. It's a pleasure. See you Um,
0: later. Yeah, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Bye.